This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome back to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly discussing today's biggest cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Pastor Rob Pacienza, and as always, joined by my co-host, John Rave. And today, uh, we have a very special episode. We are joined uh, by pastor, author, theologian, Doug Wilson. He is the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, uh, somebody that I know many in our audience are excited to hear from. So without further ado, uh, please welcome Doug Wilson. Doug, great to have you on this program. Good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Doug, let's uh, jump right into it. Uh, the big boogeyman these days is uh, what people have been calling Christian nationalism. Uh, we have yes. people even inside the church. Um, if you dare talk about uh, God and country, or you talk about faith and politics, or the Christian's role in the public square, you're deemed a Christian nationalist. Uh, we even have uh, producer Rob Reiner, uh, who is spending millions of dollars uh, producing uh, the movie God and Country. But uh, the, the phrase and the title Christian nationalism is something that you've not only uh, not uh, run away from, but something you you've embraced. Uh, tell yes. our audience why. But two basic reasons. The first is I prefer that phrase to all the other things I get called. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so so I, I, Christian nationalism is something I can work with. I can explain and, and probably have a conversation. When, you're get, when you get called white supremacist or theofascist or Christofascist, there's no discussion. Mm -hmm. Right. But when they say Christian nationalism, it's designed to scare people. It's designed to spook them. But at least you usually have a conversation and you can talk about what is meant and what is not meant. And if and that leads to the second issue, if I'm talking, if I'm having that conversation with a fellow Christian and uh, they say, so you're a Christian nationalist. And I say, OK, I've, I'll bite. Yeah, I'm 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 willing to call myself that. And they and they object to it. And I would say something like, so what are you afraid of? What? What do you think is going to happen? What What is spooking you about this? And let's say they they say something like, "I don't want uh, I don't want the state to start flogging Baptists again for uh, for not being Episcopalian, or I, I don't want that kind of religious persecution." Okay, then I would say, well, if there if let's say your worst dreams came true. And there was that sort of denominational persecution because we're Christian nationalists now and one denomination got the ascendancy and started to persecute other denominations. I, I would say, would do you think that that persecution would make Jesus happy or unhappy? And if they said, well, I th if they say, I think it'd make him unhappy, and I'd say, so do you think that we should alter our behavior so as to stop making him unhappy? And they would say, yeah. And I'd say, welcome to Christian nationalism. Mm. <laughs> right? If all I'm saying is that we ought to stop doing in the public square things that make God angry. Which, by the way, is not a was not a controversial sentiment for, I don't know what, the first 150 or so years of the Republic. I mean, this is not this is not some new idea that theonomists of the 20th of the late 20th century came up with. Yeah, exactly. So if um, another thing I might do is say, 
if if you mean by Christian nationalism, uh, dictators with mirror sunglasses and <laughs> missile parades and goose stepping armies, then no, I'm not a Christian nationalist. But if you mean the overturning of Roe, then yeah, sign me up. Okay, so because the secularists are going to call the overturning of Roe Christian nationalism, anyone who supports that is a Christian nationalist if they if they're doing so from the foundation of theological conviction. Uh, so if you mean overturning Roe, and if you mean overturning a Burgerfell, yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. But if you mean some sort of vile dictatorship, um, no, I'm against that because I think it would. Uh, make God angry to do that sort of thing. And of course, we don't want to do that because we're Christian nationalists. <laughs> That's good. It seems that, uh, you know, of course, none of the three of us here would endorse everything that Donald Trump has ever done or said. But one of the things that is a particular genius of his is sort of taking a term of derision and doing a little jujitsu on it and turning it around against his opponents. I think of, uh, you know, when the, the basket of deplorables line that, that Hillary yeah. Clinton came up with. And Fake news, which was originally a term that was being employed against Donald Trump that he used to his advantage. It yeah. seems to me like there's possibly something similar here with the term Christian nationalism. It seems to me that it was a, t a term designed to frighten and shut us up. Oh, well, Christian nationalism, that's like one step away, if any steps away, from white nationalism or the other sorts of nationalisms yeah. that we've learned to fear. So here's a term that will shut you up and that will marginalize you and it seems to me we have to realize that in the eyes of the CNNs and the MSNBCs and the 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 secular left, all of us, we're all Christian nationalists. Yeah, and I'm willing to embrace that. I'm willing to qualify as I lean in, but I'm not willing to qualify as I pull away. Mm. I'm I'm not trying to pull my skirts away from fellow believers who are doing good work in the public square. I want to lean in and say, if you're talking about Roe. Yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. Now, I don't, you know, the qualification would be I don't want the missile parades, but that's a, that's a qualification I'm making as I'm leaning in, not as I'm distancing myself from people who have been effective in the public square. Mm -hmm. The other thing to realize is that there are only three basic possibilities for social organization. It's either nationalism or globalism or tribalism. You know, you either have tribalism, which is the failed state, you know, warlords, uh, Mad Max Thunder, you know, Thunder, <laughs> Thunderdome, right. or you have nations, or you have the global elites running everything and telling you to eat your bugs. <laughs> so uh, those are the three possibilities. And then I'm simply saying, I think nationalism is what we have operating now, and I would prefer those nations to not be making God angry through the things that they're doing. That's Christ That's the only thing I mean by Christian nationalism. Mm, no, that's super helpful. Uh, Doug, the secularists have done a wonderful job in America, even inside of the church, convincing many Christians uh, to stay out of politics, to not talk about the issues that we're facing uh, as a nation. Uh, just preach the gospel and keep your faith to yourself. And they attack uh, individuals like ourselves. Why do you uh, spend so much time talking about wokeness, uh, critical race theory, queer theory? Why are you focused on these issues as a pastor who's been ordained to preach the gospel? 
Yeah, they say, why are you intruding morality into politics? And I would say, why are you intruding your politics into morality? Mm. Right? Um, and they say, they'll say things like, these are standard chestnut arguments. They'll say, we believe in separation of church and state. I, I would say, well, I do too. I believe in the separation of church and state. But that's quite a different thing than saying you believe in the separation of morality and state. Right. Um, and mor all morals have a theological foundation. You, you, you can't say, don't do this, don't steal bicycles just because. Th there's got to be a moral foundation for your mor moral system. So if you say, uh, I would turn it around and say, okay, I believe that the church is a particular ecclesiastical government that God has uh, given us designed to administer word and sacrament. That, that's the church. And I don't want the church running Congress or declaring war or collecting garbage. I want the church to preach the word. That, the, but that's an institution designed for a particular thing. But morality encompasses every area of life, not just church life. What do we call people whose morality extends out to the church walls but no further? We call them hypocrites, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> and we're against, we're against that. So um, out in the public sphere, I don't want a government that doesn't acknowledge God and doesn't acknowledge that all morality has to be based on the will of God. Because as the late Francis Schaeffer uh, taught us, if there is no absolute above the state, the state is absolute. Yeah. Mm. If there is no God above the state, the state is God. And if the state is God, then morality is whatever they say it is. And if they say it's time to kill the Jews, <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, Christians Christians should be able to stand up to a godless throne with an open Bible and say that there, there is an authority above the city of man. And uh, the, your wonderfully named uh, podcast here, the city of God, it outranks the city of man. Amen. Amen. And it should be noted as well that the founders of this country had a similar view and, and very explicitly set it out so that the state would not be God and would, in fact, be under God and uh, recognizing that it was he from whom our rights came. And, uh, Doug, there's a lot of confusion on these issues, I find, among Bible-believing evangelical Christians. We'd expect it in the culture, but a lot of confusion on it within Christianity as well. Now, you've been uh, vocally critical of what you call Big Eva, uh, short for Big Evangelical or the, the Evangelical Industrial Complex. Um, mm -hmm. What's the problem with so many voices in modern evangelicalism and maybe the evangelical establishment, you might want to call it, today? And, and what kind of leadership do you think we actually need? So the, um, I think the, the central problem with the le Big Eva leadership is that overwhelmingly, um, it, what COVID and the lockdowns and the vaccine issue revealed is that our leadership collapsed like a cheap yard sale card table. <laughs> um, it, it was it was like, oh, you're not essential. Your your services are not essential. Okay, everybody said. Mm. Well, not everybody. There are a few exceptions. John MacArthur in California and churches that stayed open, and we here in Moscow have had a steady stream of refugees coming here because 
uh, evangelical Christians who were betrayed and let down by their leadership, local church leadership and some of their big uh, conference speaker leadership, with very few exceptions, uh, the secular state said pot shops are essential services, abortion clinics are essential services, but worshiping God Almighty is not an essential service. And our leadership said, okay, hmm. well, that is just a fun, that, that's sheepdogs that don't bark. Um, it doesn't, and the wolves came and the sheepdogs didn't bark. And a lot of evangelical rank and file believers noticed that. And I think the rot has been uh, there for some time, but the last few years sort of re revealed um, the, the true state of affairs. And that's because we wanted, um, we wanted to basically do our own thing, uh, start our own ministry, pay the bills, grow the ministry, and not expect any opposition. Um, and then when the opposition came, we were woefully unprepared for it. And it really comes down to an improper understanding of government, uh, the role of government, uh, lacking a biblical worldview concerning government. Um, I think it's safe to say uh, most Democrats and Republicans don't even have a good understanding of government, but Christians need to have a good understanding of government. For our audience, what is the biblical perspective of government? Uh, what is God's design for government? And it's role in society as defined by God? That's a wonderful question. The first rule of every form of biblical government is don't try to be God. Don't, don't rival God. Hmm. Don't set yourself up as God. Um, and so when I say that I'm arguing for Christian nationalism, I, this particular issue, I've got a chapter in my book, Mere Christendom, on this. Uh, people say, well, I don't want you imposing you know, blasphemy codes on the, on individual citizens because we have a Christian state now and you can't blaspheme. Well, in scripture, you, you have, what you have to recognize for Christians, the Lord Jesus was convicted on a blasphemy charge. And uh, he was convicted on a blasphemy charge by the world's historic central blasphemer. That is the state. Hmm. Throughout all scripture, the state is the central, is the big time blasphemer. And the hmm. state blasphemes by uh, seeking to receive uh, the worship and the service and the adoration that belongs to God alone. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar did it. Uh, the Caesars did it. Caesar Augustus did it. Um, the uh, Stalin did it. You know, when, so when you look at North Korea and the huge posters of the dear leader, and the parades and all of all of that, that's a fundamentally religious activity, and it's a blasphemous one. Mm. And so consequently, the, the, the central driving theme of all Christian political theory is government must be limited, okay? Government must have boundaries and must stay within those boundaries. Why? Because there's a God in heaven. And this is why you said, one of you said earlier that our country was founded on this fundamentally Christian um, premise. And that's very true. If you, look at the, if you look at the Constitution, you see that we have separation of powers. We have uh, three branches of government. We have checks and balances. We have a federal system where there's another layer of power at the state 
level. We it's like this carefully constructed mobile mobile where everything's balanced against one another, and the the subtext of the whole thing is never trust an American politician. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's a good word. Um, yeah. Never. Uh, and because they weren't when they adopted the Constitution, they weren't weren't worried about the British. We'd, we'd won the war. We had our independence. What they were setting up, what they were setting up was a system which did not trust Americans in power. Mm -hmm. And so uh, C.S. Lewis has a great um, uh, section, one of his essays, where he says there are two views of democracy, small d democracy. Uh, one is uh, goes back to Rousseau, where you think that everybody has such a, a, a an important point of view. We can't take action until we've consulted with everybody. We want universal suffrage because everybody's wise. Right. Um, right. Lewis said that's not the that's a pagan that's a, a non-Christian way of thinking. He said he believed in democracy because everybody is so broken and so wicked and so fallen that we have to spread the power as thinly as possible over as many people as possible so as to not put power in any one place. Because it's, uh, as Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Our founders knew that, and and that is a fundamentally Christian premise in our structure of government. The statist the, the statist blasphemers want unlimited government, and Christians don't want that. We we because God, only God is unlimited, only God. We can't be trusted. Amen. And the, the state continually wants to try to usurp that uh, usurp that role. And that, Doug, brings us into another area that I know you've uh, spoken about, written about, investigated. But, uh, you know, it's this this understanding of of these two kingdoms. Uh, you know, all Christians, to some degree or another, believe that there are two kingdoms. And, and you refer to the, the name of our podcast, the City of God. Of course, that's as opposed to the City of Man. The City of God sits above the City of Man. Uh, but I know you've challenged some radical versions of of this uh, two kingdoms idea, which which seems to completely separate the earthly things from the spiritual things, uh, which becomes very detrimental. How should we properly view that relationship between the two kingdoms, and and how is it so often gotten wrong? Yeah, the the, um, the modern version of it that is doing a lot of damage is sometimes abbreviated as R2K, mm -hmm. uh, radical two-kingdom thinking, which is it, which is an abuse and a distortion of what the reformers hammered out, which is two-kingdom theology. Two-kingdom theology is great, but R2K, radical two-kingdom, basically wants to say there are the things of God and there's the kingdom within the walls of the church. And then the church has nothing to say about political issues outside. That's the city of man out there. And within the church, we can preach the gospel and we can disapprove of things, but we limit our disapproval to the sermon. <laughs> if, if it shows up even there, it's, it's, you contain it, you keep all the salt in the salt shaker. Mm. And that's the one kingdom, the, the kingdom of the church. And then the outside kingdom is, is the kingdom of man. But that's not how the reformers thought of it. There was the there was the internal kingdom across all across all platforms, the state, the church, family. There was the internal aspect of it, which only God can see. And then there's the external manifestation of it in all the, um, you know, out in the public square. 
the city hall is on the public square, and so is the central church, right? In, um, and so the reformers were the magisterial reformers, particularly, had no problem at all with the church as an institution of Christ engaging in the public square. But they knew that only God could judge the hearts of men. Only, only God sees that. Um, so we can't, we can't change, uh, claim jurisdiction over things we cannot see, but we can point to the Ten Commandments. We can point to what we're going to allow or not allow in the city streets and the, the street that runs in between City Hall and the church and the town cathedral. That's the same street. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. It is. Um, Doug, another area that you've addressed in your ministry is the issue of biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, And we have certainly seen how feminism has even crept into, toxic feminism has crept into the evangelical church. Um, Explain how it's crept in and the fallout that we are experiencing uh, concerning holding up uh, God's design for men and women in the 21st century. Yeah, I would say the central rot, the central toxin has been egalitarianism. Where uh, And so, as the fellow said, beware of all isms except for prisms. <laughs> so um, egalitarianism, uh, when you apply it to economics, you get socialism. Mm-hmm. Apply it to gender relations, you get feminism. You know, you get um, all these different manifestations, which wants to level everything, wants to make everything the same. The Christian believes in does believe in equality of opportunity. Um, So I believe that if a woman is arrested on a charge of murder, I think she should get a, a trial by jury just like a man would. I believe that if you have a right to keep and bear arms, I think that a woman has a right to keep and bear arms just like a man uh, does, um, but that's this whole thing comes down to what do we mean by rights, right? What do we mean by rights? So, uh, or put another way, what's wrong with human rights? <laughs> what, what's wrong with what's wrong with human rights is the way we've uh, broken it out and, and muddied muddied the waters. It, if I believe that you have given by God a right to free speech, and I believe that is a God given right. Uh, the only thing I have to do is so the, when one person has a right, that means others are under obligation. Okay, so if one man has a right to free speech, someone else has an obligation. Mm-hmm. The, and that obligation is to leave you alone. <laughs> Let, uh, in other words, in order to, in order to uh, allow you to have your, your right to speak your mind on whether the president's doing a good job, the only thing I have to do is nothing. Right. Okay. Just leave me alone. Uh, Just leave me alone. That's a Christian view of rights. But look how the left um, thinks of rights. Mm -hmm. I uh, the left says I have a right to fifteen dollars an hour. Okay. Well, what that means is somebody else has an obligation. What is that obligation? It's to pay fifteen dollars an hour. Right. If someone has the if someone has the right to affordable housing, then someone else has an obligation to provide affordable housing. If someone has a right to free chocolate milk, someone else has an obligation to provide the free chocolate milk. So what you're what the left is doing under the language of rights is they're enslaving people. 
right? If you have a right to free dental care, what you're saying is we want to enslave the dentists. Mm. Right? Because they're and obligated. Them, yeah. We, they're obligated, and we're going to make them come take care of your teeth. We're going to make them come supply your free chocolate milk. But in the conservative and Christian view of rights, what we need, all we need to do is respect other people and leave them alone. That's the only thing we need to do. Um, but in the leftist paradise, you have to set up a, a bureaucracy and a police force to make people provide affordable health care, affordable dentistry, affordable everything. You've, what, what you're doing is you are enslaving the populace, and you're doing it in the name of human rights. Uh, but in a Christian view, r the rights, freedom, results in actual freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it also happens to abide by some of those basic things that were written in stone, like thou shalt not steal. That, that still applies. Yeah. So it, it should be a right. little easier to distinguish. Well, and, and that's where the, you have the egalitarian impulse that brings feminism into the culture, into the church. And then closely related to that is uh, what happens to men and what happens to young men. You've written quite a bit about this, uh, one of your more influential books. Uh, I, I read it when my kids were younger, Future Men Raising Boys to Fight Giants. It's got a picture, at least the original version, had a picture of two boys wrestling on the cover of it. And uh -huh. uh, this is a picture, you know, that's in contrast with what now is is called toxic masculinity. Um, you, see right. this, you see this void there that people like Jordan Peterson, perhaps on the better side of things or Andrew Tate on the worst side of things or sort of now filling, but there's, there's a big hole there where men want to be men and nobody's telling them how to do it. What do yeah. we need to do about that? And what do we need to be telling those so, young men? Yeah. Oh, this is a wonderful question. Uh, and this ties in with the previous question of what, what has feminism wrought? And this is one of the central damaging things that, that feminism has done. Just like things fall to the ground, um, when you drop them because of gravity, just because the, the water runs downhill. Mm -hmm. In that same way, men are dominant. There is nothing you can do, nothing whatever you can do about w whether or not men will be dominant in a society. Okay? Uh, that's just a given. They're bigger, more aggressive, more testosterone. That's just a, that's the way it is. Now, and you might want to outlaw that, um, but what you're what you're going to do is, um, because men are dominant, the only choice we have is whether or not that dominance is going to be constructive or destructive. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what what feminism has done is outlawed all constructive dominance. Mm. Okay, we are not going to allow constructive dominance. So the only thing you have left is destructive dominance, right? It's the it's the old when guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have guns. Right. When when masculinity is outlawed, only outlaws will be masculine. Mm. Right. And that's what we've got. We've got men tearing the place down, and <laughs> and and we and we don't have uh, we don't have any to call to the, we can't call the good guys to have them sub, subdue the back bad guys because the good guys would have to be masculine in order to take on the bas bad right. guys 
<laughs> we right? fe- we feminize the people that would be taking on the bad guys. Right, right. You've got you feminized the SWAT teams. You feminized um, uh, military forces. You feminized the police force. You've done you've done all this because you're going to get in trouble if you say, "I'm sorry, women can't do what firemen are supposed to be able to do." Hmm. They the women can't carry that ladder. Sorry. Just the way it is. Well, that's not fair. Well, take it up with God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I didn't build her. So true. <laughs> I, I didn't build. I didn't build her. God. God created us a certain way, and men have a particular function, and women have a particular function. And this is uh, again. Sorry to say all these illegal things on your program. And <laughs> I hope get you, us all killed. I keep saying it. It's great. <laughs> Um, but women are built by God, created by God to be nurturers. They are life givers. And this is and and men are, are good at breaking things and killing people. Um, and that can be destructive, as in criminal gangs, or it can be constructive when you have a an effective military that defends your borders. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, destructive or constructive. And we've outlawed it constructively. Uh, you remember this um, when... Back in first grade, uh, girls are about nine months ahead of the boys right. developmental, developmentally in first grade, which means that academically, within the rules of the classroom, the girls can dominate within the rules. They're the ones sitting in the first two rows with their hand up in the air <laughs> saying, ooh, ooh, call on me, call on me. And the boys are in the back row shooting spitballs and saying, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> and because the boys can't dominate constructively, the girls are running circles around them. They dominate by tipping over chairs and shooting spitballs and uh, throwing things out of the window. And, you know, they, they're going to be the center of attention. So you, what you need to do is create a pathway for men to, to contribute productively. Hmm. Here's, here's another way of, of, of putting this. If you, um, um, if you compare a man's sexual cycle, and again, we're just talking about the way things are mm-hmm. a man's sexual cycle to a woman's sexual cycle. If we're not talking about someone who's the victim of a steady dint of propaganda, just the way men are and the way women are a man's sexual cycle is from arousal to climax. A woman's sexual cycle is from arousal to when the kid graduates from college. <laughs> okay. She, um, she is, uh, she has a nesting instinct. Mm-hmm. She wants a home. She wants protection. She wants the father to stick around. All right. Now, if you have, if you create a situation as we have created it, where you require the woman's sexual cycle to be to be subordinated to the man's, mm-hmm. what you get is hookup culture. Mm. Right. What what you get is is uh, motorcycle gang ethics. What you get is a boatload of Vikings ethics. Mm, interesting. Right? Um, but if you construct things where the men submit their sexual cycle to the woman's, what you get is civilization. What you get is skyscrapers and moon mm-hmm. landings. <laughs> That's yeah. what you get. But but men aren't going – and I'm just speaking uh, observationally. I'm speaking as, here as an amateur sociologist. In order for the man to – submit his sexual cycle to the woman's, uh, what's in it for him? 
Okay, what's in it for him? Why why should he give up the life of a freebooting Viking? Why should he give up the life of a motorcycle gang, which a lot of men find attractive? Okay, why why should he surrender that in order to have a house mortgage and a white picket fence and a lawn to mow and kids to drive to soccer practice? Why should he give up the life on the road for that? The trade-off historically has been, look, We'll let you run everything. <laughs> Which is right. not a bad deal. Yeah. Not a bad deal. In other words, it, the cost yeah. is patriarchy. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. so if you if you uh, but if you outlaw patriarchy, what you're doing is you're chasing away all the constructive dominant types. All the type A, all the masculine people are going to go into toxic They'd rather be toxic and masculine than turn in, turned into a girl, mm. right? And so uh, it, it used to be that you could be masculine, uh, tough, a leader, and civilized. But we've outlawed that civilized part, and that's the legacy of feminism. Now, the in a, in a delicious sort of irony— um, Men have once that once women wrecked their own their only protection, which is good men running the show. Bad men are now taking over femininity, right? Interesting. The whole, yeah, the whole sure. the whole trans thing. Yeah, there's no such. Uh, feminism has resulted in the destruction of women, right? It's the uh, who who was it that blew apart women's sports? Yeah. Yep. Well, the feminism. great irony. Feminists, yeah. Right. yeah. Yep. Feminists. And some feminists, uh, the turf feminists, are catching on late in the game. But um, men are just – remember what I said about men want to be dominant? Right. It's going mm -hmm. to be sure. destructive or destructive. And if it's destructive, they're going to want to dominate everything. Hmm. So a man wants to dominate the women's weightlifting competition. Men want to dominate the women's boxing. Men want to dominate women's swimming. Men want to dominate. Mm. Their, but now it's destructive. Right now it's destructive. That's yep. a fascinating perspective. It really is. And, and what you just did there, I think, is so helpful for those that are listening, because in a society dominated by intersectionality and neo-Marxism and critical theory, uh, we have uh, bought the lie uh, that somehow we need to be released from the shackles of biblical manhood and womanhood in order to find freedom and flourishing. But as you just described, we're actually experiencing the opposite. Rejecting right. God's design for manhood and womanhood has led to chaos, uh, confusion, and destruction in our society, and all the more reason why we need to recover God's design uh, for the family, uh, God's design for marriage, God's design for gender and sexuality, and God's design for manhood and womanhood. Uh, Absolutely. Doug, Doug uh, final question. Uh, we're currently recording this podcast in the year 2024. Uh, an election season, and very uh, uh, well-meaning Bible-believing Christians um, have kind of embraced what we would call Christless conservatism, um, right. a, a political ideology that is somehow disconnected from uh, the basis and the foundation of Jesus Christ being Lord of all. What is your warning and your counsel to those Christians out there, 
to typically, especially in this political season, to reject a Christless conservatism and embrace instead a political ideology that is informed chiefly by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, Christless conservatism is going to be, um, at the end of the day, just as idolatrous as everything else. And for Christless conservatives, the idol is probably going to be red, white, and blue in some sort of some fashion, right? Yep. Um, and this, it's ironic that as a Christian nationalist, I want the nation part to be a subordinate to to occupy a subordinate role. If you if you reject the Christian part, the nationalism isn't going to go away. It's going to rise to take the place of the Christian part. So. Um, Christian nationalism means that you have a break on the nationalism, but Christless nationalism, Christless conservatism is going to have no break uh, there, right? So what we have to do, and, and the other thing is that it's going to drift. So one of the things that when women were introduced into combat roles, it took about 10 minutes for the Christless conservatives to start praising our men and our brave men and women in uniform. Right. right. So, uh, so what happens is conservatives continually growl at the next innovation while fighting to make the previous innovation work. Mm. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. Uh, so you'll have Christless conservatives fighting the tranny thing while uh, accepting homosexuals, mm -hmm. you know, open homosexuals, well, he's in favor of free markets and he doesn't like Biden. So I'll put up with the fact that he's married to another dude. Well, okay. It, it doesn't, I don't know how, whether or not the city council of Sodom was center right or not. <laughs> um, God still rained down fire from heaven. Yeah. God is still in heaven. He still. Uh, promises to deal with impudence and sin and rebellion, and uh, for the for the Christless conservative or the Christian who's got uh, well, I believe in Jesus in private, you know, um, but I'm going to operate in the public square as though Jesus did not rise from the dead. Uh, that's incoherent because if Jesus rose from the dead in this world, that means necessarily that he owns the place. He's the Lord of this world. Mm. Why? He rose from the dead. Yep. Amen. And then his lordship covers all, uh, every sphere of culture. Well, Doug, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the City of God podcast. Uh, but most importantly, thank you for your faithfulness. It is so needed right now. Uh, as a fellow pastor, I often fear that I am a voice in the wilderness and to know that there are other men of God out there that are uh, declaring the whole counsel of God and being steadfast when it comes to the calling of the Christian in this cultural moment. Uh, we are grateful for you. And I know I speak for so many young pastors out there that look up to you and admire you and are grateful for your ongoing ministry. 
Well, thank you, and thank the Lord. And if this is our final podcast, I feel like we went out with a bang here. We'll see. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I, but I enjoyed it. Didn't get you in too much trouble. <laughs> I enjoyed it so much, I snort laughed at one point. So go. thank you. <laughs> and that's a wrap for this episode of the City of God podcast. If you enjoyed this episode with Pastor Doug Wilson, we pray that you would pass this along to a family member, a friend, someone who is interested in tackling today's cultural issues all through the lens of God's infallible word. I want to thank you once again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on The City of God. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture.